0: This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing.
1: Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing. Check out flyracing.com for a look at some of their riding gear. On this week's show, we're going to take a look into a crystal ball of where there's no yardstick in MotoGP and World Superbikes. What would it be like if Mark Marquez and Jonathan Ray retired in the morning? Adam Wheeler, you're... uh Back from a trip to the Canaries. I have to say, Ad, you're looking very tanned after your trip down there. Was it nice and relaxing?
2: Well, uh, considering I went to a place that only averages three days of rain per month, and it rained for the two that I was there, there's not too much of a tan, Steve. I think it might just be the flattering light. Um, But no, fantastic new bike. uh, The KTM, let me get this right, 1290 Super Adventure S. uh, The road going uh, flagship model for the Austrians. Uh, I guess it's the the motorcycle they say is going to take on the GS. Uh, the triumph and Ducati's uh, moldy v4 which i think has already made a pretty big splash in that segment you know it's big heavy well-equipped motorcycles cost a fortune um but they're they're selling like hotcakes so it's uh, it was good to test that bike even though the weather was grim uh but yeah it was a good machine it's got a chain though ad it's got a chain that means you've got to like adjust your chain and everything It's got a chain, Dave. And also I had to ride it on very wet sand with uh, street tires, which was, um, it was not, it was not fun. It was, you know, it was okay. But there was a couple of moments where the thing was going left and I was kind of heading right. So that's never a fun experience.
1: That that actually seems very similar to all my experiences on a bike and then quickly followed by my face hitting the floor. Uh, Neil, Neil Morrison on the pod as usual again this week. And Neil, Adam says that it's just flattering light for him that's making him look really tanned. What? Why are you so pale looking? Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's the white walls behind me, Steve. Somehow there's a, a kind of optical illusion in that uh, the white from the walls is carrying over to my face. That's, That's right,
0: Like a halo of hair. That's where the only way so you, you know where
1: Neil is. <laughs> well, let's ask Neil the usual question that we've asked him for the last couple of weeks. Neil, how's lockdown life in Barcelona treating you and have you left your room at all?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Still locked in, Steve. Still completely locked into my room. So, um, yeah, thoughts and prayers. If you could send them my way, it would be greatly appreciated.
1: It's quite worrying, actually, because I've been in your apartment, Neil, and and you don't have an en suite. Dave, obviously, David Emmett from motomatters.com on the podcast, as usual. And Dave, it's been a little bit different for you up in the Netherlands. It's been a lot of snow. looks like there's been pretty much two days of blizzards for you. I, I presume you've been out building snowmen.
0: Um, I have not I've been watching neighbours Children um, uh, Building Snowmen Because that's much Warmer Because you can do that From inside Without going outside Are,
1: are you, yeah, you and... sure you want to Leave this on the podcast Dave, you spent the last <laughs> Couple of days Watching your Neighbours' Children <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, uh, let's uh, the less about that, the better. But um, um, no, I mean it's, it's it it has genuinely um, been a huge amount of snow. There's been uh, there's probably you know 10, 15 centimeters, which is you know six inches, which if you're from Canada means absolutely nothing. Um, but for Holland, like we occasionally get sort of you know. <laughs> an inch uh, of snow and um now it's been you know proper uh, proper snow there were no trains at all the other day and um i have got lots of exercise clearing my path so um i've uh, i'm a, a big strong man now
1: yeah, I'll tell you what, we'll wait and see if that's the case when the season gets underway, Dave. <laughs> Just uh, while Dave's been sitting inside uh, watching the Neighbours Children Build Snowman, nice to see that we've got a few new Patreons on the podcast as well. Mike Brown, Gav Nixon, and Magnus Crabb all uh, supporting the Paddock Pass podcast at patreon.com forward slash paddockpasspodcast. Uh, so for $3 a month, you're able to support the podcast and uh, you'll get additional content from us throughout the course of the year. So, boys, on this week's show, we're going to take a look at what it would be like in MotoGP and World Superbikes without having the top dog, without having the rider to judge everyone else by. So obviously, David, in MotoGP, that would be without Marc Marquez. And it was interesting that whenever we asked listeners of the pod to describe MotoGP in one word. We got lots of responses back. We got words like, it was wild, it was crazy, it was unpredictable. And well, Suzuki described it as uh, being unreal, but uh, that shows a lack of confidence in what they thought the season was gonna be (laughs) really, Dave. But uh, how much of that came down to Mark not being on the grid? It gives us a good example of what it would be like if we didn't have the best rider we've ever seen.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, certainly there's a substantial part which is down to Mark Marquez not being on the grid. But also, especially last year, it was really difficult to say because it was such a strange year uh, because we didn't start until July, uh, because we were doing so many back-to-back races, um, because we were racing at tracks in... Uh, extremely unusual weather you know when it it was so cold in barcelona which normally it's absolutely boiling and when it was so cold in lamar and you know it is quite cold in lamar quite often but it was much much colder um so it was there, there was a lot of different factors there you know um we had engine development frozen we had aerodynamics frozen um it made a it made it more difficult i think also I do wonder how much the um, how much difference the lack of fans made I mean f- for the spectacle it didn't make much of a f- uh, much of a difference because you know it's a, it's a it's a noisy sport it's very very loud so you didn't miss the, cre- the you know sort of the, the cheering of the crowds or anything uh, but you have to wonder what effect it had actually sort of on the riders uh, themselves because you know w- we know that they do feed off that energy um so maybe for some it was more costly than others so there are lots and lots of factors but the fact that mark marquez actually uh you know ruled himself out of contention basically at the first race i think it had a massive massive effect
1: Adam, just to take on one part of what Dave was talking about there, about how basically it's a very small sample size, it's a very unique season, races in different times a year, we've had lots of different additions to the season, it could be back-to-back rounds or different things like that. Obviously in motocross we had the same, and I'm interested just to know what the riders in motocross actually thought about all those different factors that changed through the course of their season, because it was super condensed for them obviously.
2: I think um, the biggest factor in motocross, especially contrasted with MotoGP, is the is the fact that the amount of training and riding the guys are doing. Um, and there's always a risk involved when motocrossers have to train because they're not just going round and round track at a track at a slow speed. So motocrossers had their training time reduced because they were squeezing in three Grand Prix per week. Um, and the, bi- the biggest reaction that, that I discovered from that was they were happy to have that racing time rather than the practice time. Um, you know, if you're going to risk something, it's much better to do it going for Grand Prix points. So that was the biggest factor, I think, Steve. When it comes to MotoGP, I think we saw also, I mean, we know the guys were dealing with uh, travel restrictions, um, PCR testing uh, to, to a degree, um, you know, a confinement in the paddock where they couldn't really go out, they couldn't really do much. So there were different circumstances. In motocross, it wasn't quite as restrictive as that. Uh, but I think it was just the, the relentlessness of the races. I mean, it was it 14 races in 18 weeks in MotoGP in the end? Um, and for motocross, it was, I think, a late July start in, in Latvia until early November. So it was, uh, you know, and those triple headers were, were the biggest part. But again, it was just a swap for for training, for, for racing.
3: Yeah, and I agree with, uh, with what both of you guys said there um i would also like to add in that um you know mark was obviously missing through 2020 um what Vizioso wasn't missing um you know he was there he was present however we, we saw basically his ability to to fight for a championship kind of disappear last year and um, if you look from 2017 to 2019 i mean if you take mark and Vizioso out of the standings which is you know a purely hypothetical thing but you know the 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 championship behind those two guys was very, very close in both of those years as well. And if, let's say, Mark got injured in 2018 and Davizioso had some issues with um, adapting to a rear tyre and Ducati wasn't quite as competitive, you know, perhaps we would have seen a similar sort of situation in 2018. Um, Because I think, yeah, in 17, um, third place and fifth place in the championship was separated by just like 22 points. A year later, in 18, it was just five points that separated third and fourth. And then uh, in 2019, it was like 19 points that separated third and fifth. So yeah, when you take the two most constant elements out of the championship of the, um, of the you know, the kind of past era, um, then that's what you get. And Davizio was okay. He was there in 2020, but uh, he was nowhere near the force that he was before. I think that was maybe a factor as well.
0: Yeah and a lot of that is just down to the to, to the Michelin rear tire well I think the combination of the Michelin rear tire which was dramatically different Um, and the lack of testing because we went to Sepang, we had the uh, Sepang test, we had the Qatar test, uh, and then we had like nothing for, hang on, was it three, maybe four months? Um, That was a long time to go with no development time, with no time to actually work on the bike, no time to really test the bikes. Um, uh, I think some manufacturers got it wrong. I think, for example, Ducati genuinely messed up by not uh, by not understanding failing to understand how different the michelin rear tire was um uh, others were much better at it um but i think um th- that that th- the lack of testing was also uh, uh, also played a role it meant that um people were going into racing a lot less prepared than they would have been normally and uh, generally i mean you see that a lot uh in on race weekends, where there where you lose a couple of uh, of uh, practice sessions uh, to the weather, you usually get a better uh, you usually get better you uh, know um, better racing because people have less time to prepare. So it's it's more uh, there's a greater role for luck, but that actually produces more exciting racing.
1: Yeah, and uh, quite interested then as well, Neil. Just to ask you about the side of not having a crowd at a race because. That seems to have been a big impact for a lot of riders, but it seems like it's been a positive impact for them because there's less distractions. They're able to spend more time with their engineers. They're able to really focus on what they have to do. And they've got much less pressing engagements compared to a normal race weekend. Is that something that you found with a lot of riders in MotoGP or was it only some riders that found that way? Because I I felt like in Moral Superbikes, a lot of riders really commented that that was one one of the positives if you want, as opposed to, obviously, everyone would always say that they want to have the fans back, mm. but there are positives to have from uh, a quieter paddock.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're, I think you're right, Steve. Um, it's difficult to say, you know, just how much that impacts the results, but, um, but certainly with someone like Rossi, uh, who just can't move in a, in a paddock in normal circumstances, um, to see him going about in a scooter and, and sort of casually walking between trucks um, at Mizano, um, I remember seeing him coming back from the commentary uh, on one occasion and he was just casually walking over to his garage, you know, without a care in the world. And uh, Matt Dunn, my, my commentary colleague, um, commented like, you know, when was the last time you were able to do this? And he was like, ah, never, never in my life. Um, so, yeah, the fact that you can go about your business um, at ease is is probably something that uh, people find a little more um reassuring or um, yeah, less stressful. And then there's things like, I guess you don't have to go and meet the fans or you know, sign copious amounts of autographs and, and just things like this. Again, I'm not sure exactly how much of an impact that has on the results per se, but it certainly leads to uh, perhaps a more relaxed atmosphere for some of the higher profile names um, in their day-to-day going on in the paddock.
1: Yeah, and Adam, I'm going to ask you a question about what Neil was talking about there, about the riders being less distracted and the positives you can find from that. Obviously, whenever we did our top 10 review of the season our top 10 riders the year, both myself and yourself left Fabio Quattararo off of our top 10 lists. Do you think when you look at Fabio, he's such an emotive rider. Like you see him whenever he sets a fastest lap in a practice session, he's ready to beat the bar and the tank and you know, we've seen him set off his airbag a lot after getting the pole position. Do you think does not having the energy of the crowd did that have a big impact on him last year? It's hard to say, isn't it? I mean,
2: due to the fact that as journalists, we were barely allowed into the circuits, you know, ourselves to, to really judge any kind of mood or atmosphere. Um, and of course, contact with with riders and team staff was limited largely to a screen. Um but, you know, Neil was saying there are obviously comfort advantages for MotoGP taking place without a crowd. Uh, but I think you have to remember that apart from maybe a handful of teenagers or debutants, a lot of the riders are used to that environment where they have to do signings, meet and greets, uh, media duties. I think it would have been maybe slightly alienating. And also I, I question how much that would really impact their performance. I mean, like any kind of uh, elite athlete they just block all that stuff out anyway. The level of focus must be paramount.
0: Yeah. I I mean, one of the thing that one writer commented to me sort of off the record was that, um, it was really boring, um, because there was just nothing to do. Normally, the, the, the fact that there are lots of uh, sort of fans about, I mean, it can be a pain because you can't, you know, it, it becomes impossible to get back to your motor home. But the fact there is sort of like lots of stuff going on, um, you can, you know, go out and cycle, you can go out and do whatever you like that. I think man had like, that made it more more difficult it made it more sort of monotonous it it really was just racing you know it it gets back to the all work and uh, was it all all work and no play makes jack a dull boy um uh, now jack biller is a dull boy by no means whatsoever um, um uh, quite the opposite but um it's this lack of distraction, the lack of entertainment, the lack of, the lack of anything else. It was just work. It was strictly work. And there was, it didn't feel like, because, you know, you know, the thing I think all of us really missed about the races this year is the fact that it really is like a carnival atmosphere. It's a festival. It's, it, it's, it's a festival of speed. Um, it's a party. And, uh, that was completely lacking. I mean, just even watching it. I mean, the racing was fantastic. But watching it was, um, uh, uh, especially sort of like practice and all the rest of it, it felt very flat.
1: Yeah, it was you were involved, but you were at a distance. Yeah, which I think for all of us was quite strange. Obviously, Neil, you were still in the paddock. Adam, you got to go a couple of times, but it was literally just to sit in an, in an auxiliary media center and not really able to go around the paddock or around the track. It was very strange. And Dave, like you said, for the riders, it was really unique and they had to find new things to do and uh, that's where I found it quite interesting like at Valencia for instance whenever Dorna opened up a golf course and suddenly half the paddock decided that I have to go play golf just because it's there (laughs) and uh, you know there was lots of things like that all the way through the year that were a big change for a lot of people and Neil when you look at changes that we've seen over the years 2020 was pretty unique really because obviously if you take it granted that Mark was gone for the whole season effectively. We've not really had too many seasons where that was the case. Obviously, the purpose of this show was to talk about what would happen if we didn't have that pace-setting rider on the grid, if, if Mark retired in the morning or different riders like that. But even when you look back at the history of MotoGP, and you're always a, a good historian of the class, I can't really think of too many examples other than the likes of Mick Doohan retiring. And again, Mick obviously retired through injury, but we don't really have too many examples where that, like, yardstick for all the riders to judge themselves by was suddenly gone overnight. And uh, that's what happened last year.
3: Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, there's certain instances of, uh, of, of great riders um, having to retire through injury um, or unfortunate circumstances like Rain Rainey, for example, at the uh, the tail end of 93. But then, you know, Doohan and Schwanz were still around. Those were still guys that could go out and uh, kick the other guy's asses. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, we're looking at... Um, at limited number of examples usually there is a ready-made replacement ready to go when one person stands aside you know when kenny roberts senior retired freddie spencer was there to take over um i'm thinking crivier in 99 is one example um you know doing crashed obviously i think at the at the third round and after that it was notable how basically the races were a lot slower than the years before. Um, lap times were a lot slower without doing being there. And the races got quite a bit more exciting um, as a result of that. And that carried into 2000 as well because, you know, Kenny Roberts was the guy that year, Kenny Roberts Jr. But he wasn't exactly setting the world on light. And we had eight different winners then. Um, yeah, I'd be struggling to think of examples other than that. Perhaps you could look at uh, Uncini in 81 or oh, sorry, Lucanelli in 81, Uncini in 82. Um, two guys that won championships for Galena Suzuki, effectively like a privateer team, um, which is pretty pretty nutty. And that was mainly as a consequence of Yamaha getting their bikes so wrong. So therefore, Kenny Roberts wasn't uh, as competitive as uh, he should have been and he could have been. Um, and yeah, but fight- Kenny,
1: Kenny was obviously still on the grid as well yeah, at that stage, Neil. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, yeah, And then obviously, if you look at when Ago retired, Barry Sheen comes in, and then you've got Kenny Roberts. Maybe you could make a, a bit of a call for, for Barry, but then Ago was still on the grid for another couple of years after his last title. So for me, whenever I was thinking about it, it really was just that one time we're doing retired. Because if you look back, like you said, you know, you've got lots of unfortunate circumstances where the likes are rainy. But Kevin Schwantz won that championship and was still on the grid the following year. You had Dewan starting his dominance then. It's hard to really find anyone uh, when you look at the history for an example similar to what we had last year. I mean,
2: like Neil pointed out, I mean, straight after Dewan, you went to Crivier, then to Roberts, and then sort of the Valentino Rossi era began. But then, you know, if you try to compare eras, if you look at MotoGP now, could you make an argument that, say juan mir is is the next rossi um is he coming up into the class he's already won the title uh could we foresee him being a racer that will win another five championships over the course of the six six seven years to come um you know that's that's the real debating point um of course if we assume marcus has, has gone for good uh,
0: yeah you um neil just said about uh, uh, about when do retired that the uh all of a sudden you know the lap times really uh really uh well dropped were a lot slower suddenly it was a lot slower and i just sort of like quickly flick through the results on uh on the com website and um I, I mean we saw uh new lap records either uh, qualifying or uh or race lap records at three different tracks i think uh jerez and uh, i think i think in fact uh jerez aragon or oh not aragon jerez the barcelona um and, may, and maybe valencia that there was you know that they, they set uh, they, they set lap records there so it didn't suddenly um uh it didn't didn't suddenly get slower um, it got uh, it, we were almost as fast. We still had Maverick Vinales, Fabio Quasararo, um, and people like that, mate, setting lap records, Franco Morbidelli setting lap records. They were still going really, really fast. Um, it's just that uh, there wasn't someone who could find that little bit extra to actually, uh, you know, make a difference.
1: Well, I think as well, when you look at it now, the depth of the field is stronger than anything we've ever seen, and that's probably the biggest factor because if you look at when Rossi came through as a rookie in 500s and 2000 you know he was pretty fast in his opening races he won mid-season he was a podium man from you know five six races into his into his season and he pretty much quickly established himself as the top rider in the class the second half of that season even if he didn't win the championship and then by 2001 he had firmly made himself into that top rider but you know if you look at now with the, with the field so deep, it's probably a lot harder to really distinguish yourself as well.
2: Yeah, both. I mean, both in terms of talent and the machinery, Steve. I mean, Rossi came into the class on an NSR, which was obviously the motorcycle to have in that era.
3: With Doon's uh, crew. And been, I
2: mean, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Straight into Doon's crew. So, I mean, that was, you know, Jerry Burgess as well. That was, uh, you know, a group of people that were used to winning. Um, and I think he went straight in with the right mentality and blended straight away to tremendous effect. But, you know, it's clear that MotoGP over the last 10 years, especially, has, has adapted with its rules, um, its technical regulations to to make more of a level playing field, whether you're talking about spec tires or we've had now controlled uh, uh, ECU and electronics for five years. And it's still interesting that in that five-year period, I mean, half a decade, Mark Marquez has won four championships. So that's another indication of, you know, the the talent and, and the uh, the c- the capabilities of the man. But, you know, what Dawn is, um they may have scrubbed some of the technical um, variety or some of the, you know, the, the juicy stuff away from the premier class, but they have achieved in making everything far closer together. And it's still astounding for me to see uh, qualifying time separated. you know, 20 riders split by less than a second is something that, you know, could, would fry your brain. I think if you were a technician, especially as a rider, I mean, how do you go back to your, your little box or to your, your confinement or whatever and think, right? I need to try and find three tenths of a second somewhere knowing you've been on the absolute limit.
1: Yeah. I remember I was talking to one engineer about it and they said, well, we're losing four tenths down the straight. And uh, that leaves us, you know, another half a second to find all the way around the track. And there's, you know, 10 corners and you're trying to find half a tenth in each corner. It's tough to do. And they're trying to find all those finite examples. And Dave, just before we take an ad break, we've got uh, Neil Hodgson. You were talking to Hodgie just about what he's seen in MotoGP with Mark and uh, what he's seen, obviously, in World Superbikes with uh, Jonathan Ray. And it's interesting to talk to someone like Haji about this, because obviously Haji, a former world champion, but works currently as a commentator for BT Sports, so he's in the paddock a lot. He's obviously a massive interest in everything that's going on. He's also Alex Lowe's manager in World Superbikes, so he's got a hand in that paddock as well, keeps a big eye on everything that's going on there. So he's really well-placed to be able to give his thoughts on uh, what he sees in those championships if we took away the likes of Mark Marquez and Jonathan Ray.
4: Oh my God. Just the prospect of World Superbikes without Jonathan Ray is exciting. I just feel like I've got to uh, clarify that I'm very good friends with Jonathan. Massive respect and like total hero worship. I mean, he's an absolute machine. But the championship without him, when he eventually uh, eventually retires, just comes back alive, doesn't it? It's what exactly what we witnessed this year, uh, last year in, in MotoGP, where all of a sudden it's wide open. You're going to get lots of different winners and it'd be hard to call. That's the reality. On paper, you'd go Scott Redding would be a clear favourite, but that's today. And the only reason for that is, Scott's an incredible rider, don't get me wrong, but that Ducati package with him on it is amazing. So I'm not taking anything away from him, Scott, as a rider, but uh, as we know, that's basically a MotoGP back in World Superbikes. Ducati have done a great job, haven't they? They've produced an incredible motorcycle. So yeah, it'd be just wide open, be more entertaining, because let's be honest, and this is the truth, um, I I feel like I'm quite knowledgeable on World Superbikes, and I already knew who's was going to win the championship this year. Yeah, exactly, Johnny Ray. Motor GP without Mark Marquez, unfortunately, I think that's obviously what we are going to have to start getting used to by the look of it. We witnessed it last year. Who'd have thought, eh? That first race. What a race it was. Bizarre, wasn't it? You know, qualifying it had been close at a race. You know, first race of the year, all that pressure. Marquez gets to the front, tucks the front on what lap was it? Lap four or whatever. Runs off the track and then we see, I think why we all look, oh, why... The proper purists love Mark Marquez. You're watching him just just take motorcycle racing to another level. Come through the field, gets up to where was a third, and then has that huge crash, and that was it. And what did what? And then what happened next? Well, what happened next was a fantastic season's racing. You know, Brad Binder winning the third uh, Grand Prix of the season in his rookie year on a KTM. There were, there were so many bizarre things happened. ever winning two races on the KTM, Petruccia winning another race and so on and so on. Of just a, an incredible season. I think this year is going to be more of the same. Is Marquez going to be back? God, I hope so, because I want to see the genius at his best again. Will he be at his best? That's a big question, no one knows. But MotoGP without Mark Marquez is incredible racing. But unfortunately, um, for, 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 for me personally, I really miss it. Really miss watching. I, well, I've said to so many people, I said, You know, last season, how many times throughout the whole season do you see a rider on a MotoGP bike go through a corner, lose the front, completely close the front and catch it on the knee? Not one rider. The only rider I saw do it, and I watched every session was in Moto2, Bastion needed it two or three times, no one else. And that is what I miss. I miss someone doing something on a motorcycle that I can't do. And actually, it looks like no one else can do.
0: Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021.
1: Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. David, we just heard from Neil Hodgson there about uh, what he'd see in MotoGP and World Superbikes without the top riders. And, I think Haji shares the same thoughts as what pretty much every fan has as well. You want to see the best writers out there. You want to be constantly amazed by what you see on the TV.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is the thing about Mark Marquez. Honestly, his unworldly level of writing talent. I mean, nobody saves, um, you know... Nobody saves bikes the way that uh, Mark Marquez does. We're, we're starting to see, the interesting thing is, we are starting to see riders coming up from Moto2 uh, who have been watching Mark Marquez for the past, what is it, seven years in in MotoGP and seeing what he can do and trying to copy him and trying to learn. Uh, they've been copying his training techniques. We're seeing a lot of people doing um, uh, flat track, you know, practice where you can practice losing the front. And then understanding what's happening and trying to get it back, even though it's really, really difficult. Um, so yeah, the, the, this is these riders are starting to come through. Um, uh, so watching Mark Marquez is, a, a, you know, it, it's a joy to watch him, but it doesn't always make for exciting racing. I mean, it, it makes for exciting racing when he has to use his riding talent to comp- to compensate for a weaker bike, but when Honda give him a good bike, then he's just, you know, he, he just disappears, um, and that can make it a lot less uh, a lot less interesting. So I think the you know the, the the positive point, if you like, of losing Mark Marquez would be or. Ha- um, even not even losing mark marcus but having a, a mark marcus in a situation where he has to uh, actually work harder at, um, at at trying to win is you would get much more exciting racing and we saw uh, i just quickly tell it we had 14 different riders on the podium last year which is from a field of 22 riders is absolutely astonishing
1: yeah and uh I'd, we're going to just have a couple of quick hit thoughts now from each of you but i want to just ask you a quick question without mark on the grid with the parity we've seen in regulations you have already talked about it do you think is it possible to see someone really step themselves up and go out and win 9 10 11 races like we saw marquez do like we saw rossi do
2: in short no uh, i think you know as we said earlier the depth of talent is too big um the parity of motorcycles is too tight or dense uh i think you know to find a talent like that to be able to get multiple race wins to notch something like a 50 40 percent rate of victory throughout a season i'll be very surprised if those days come around quickly
1: yeah 56 race wins and i think only a few short of 100 podiums neil and you've pretty much been at all the races since mark came into the premier class and there was a buzz right from the start, whenever he had his first test, whenever he jumped from a Moto2 bike. And uh, I remember Cal Crutchlow said before his first test that Mark is already the best rider in the world. And those kind of guys just don't come around often.
3: Yeah, they certainly don't. Um, and as I'd said, um, you know, with the, the kind of technical parity that we have and the depth of talent, um, yeah, I don't really foresee anyone at the moment Um stepping up and putting a kind of dominant season together. Um, I just add that it was very strange. We are recording on the day of the, the Ducati team presentation and we had the chance to speak to Jack Miller and Pekko Bagnia afterwards. And uh, how strange was it when Miller was asked who's going to be the biggest challenger this year? And he didn't even mention Mark at all. I mean, that just seemed very odd indeed. I think he mentioned Fabio... Uh, Mir obviously um, One or two other names Franco obviously as well um, But um, Yeah it, It's 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 still strange Because none of us really Know Just uh, the extent of, of Of Mark's injury And you know How strong he will be When he comes back I think we can all assume That he won't be that strong um, So I think we could be Looking at another year Similar to 2020 Where we have it just It's just wide open And there's Wild fluctuations Between results And uh, Depending on the tracks That we go to So you know, in that regard, it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting.
2: Well, we are speculating. I mean, today was also the first images we saw from HRC, uh, doing the official photo shoot, and Mark Marcus was back in a set of leathers, which means, well, sweet FA, but um it's it's also I mean, he looked in shape. He he didn't look uh uncomfortable uh, if you especially if you compare it to somebody like Jorge Lorenzo when he was uh, wincing his way around the stage in in the Repsol building in Madrid two years ago uh, with that broken wrist. Uh, Marquez yeah, like Neil says it's impossible to really know what's going to happen but um, you know the fact that he's already appearing and doing the the pre-season show is uh, is, it's got to be a positive sign at least.
1: Yeah and I think Mark's obviously one of those writers that never wants to show any weakness as well. Whereas Jorge, for all his talents, he was always a bit more of, I don't want to say a showman, but he was always more willing to let that side of himself come through. And Mark is always just about making sure that he puts his foot on your head and then pushes you onto the water. And I think that's what's going to be interesting for whenever he comes back. Because, Dave, we've never seen Mark have this kind of adversity. And suddenly... You know, the blood's in the water and there's a lot of sharks in MotoGP and this is their opportunity.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, we've seen him have the uh, eye problem back in at the end of 2011, um, which uh, they genuinely didn't know whether he would be able to race again. Um, you know, they, they, had, they had to wait until he actually got back on a bike, uh, on a Moto2 bike at... A test somewhere in a, t- in a in a track in Spain where BSB were were, were um, uh, practicing, I seem to recall, um, and so yeah, he knew a little bit about that, but this yeah like you say it does seem it does seem much much bigger and just being able to put your leathers on is fine but that's not the same as actually having to bear all of that weight all of that stress through your through your right upper arm and it's i mean the shoulder the upper arm they're such important part of your muscles of your musculature of, of of the uh, uh, the part of your body which you're using to actually control the motorcycle. Um, you know, you're carrying all of your weight on your shoulders when you're braking. You're using a lot of force to actually try and push the bike around. Uh, uh, your left hand, you can spare a little bit, but you can never take your right hand off of the throttle, off of the brakes. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's, you know it's one of the worst injuries you can have so it's going to be really really interesting to see the difference between you know being able to put your leathers on and being able to put your leathers on get on a bike and then go out and uh, uh try to break lap records
2: do, do we do we think that there's a certain amount of inevitability about this because you know mark's mo for as spectacular as it is and, and fantastic it's obviously worked for him because it's delivered the results i mean he's wrecked two shoulders uh maybe it was only a case of you know, borrow time really for notching as much success as he could before some injury was going to sideline him like this. Whether it was going to be an arm or a hip or a leg or some nerve damage, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, speaking to Santi Hernandez last season, um, I kind of asked him that question and said, you know, were you kind of expecting this at some point that Mark would have a a substantial period on the sidelines? And he said, well, you know, it's worked for him so far, which I thought was still, was another way of looking at it. But I think, you know, all of us have been like, oh, so many times when it comes to mark's uh, you know endeavors around a racetrack i mean he's he has been lucky hasn't he
1: yeah and i think for for all of us like we've all written it or we've all talked about it where the only thing that was going to stop mark was going to be mark because his talent is so much more than the other writers out there and when you talk to writers they all say the same thing you know they say about talent and hard work and mark is at the top of both of them and when he's got that confidence that goes from consistently beating people, it was always going to be hard to knock him off that perch. The big thing that was going to do it was going to be an injury. And Mark said so many massive crashes over the years, so many near misses that, you know, he was always going to get injured at some point. And chances are it was always going to be from a big crash.
0: Yeah, I mean, anyone who's seen the opening uh, scenes of uh, the French uh, film Lion Haine uh, could... Just see this coming, you know, just si, just si, uh, tout va bien, everything's far so far, everything's fine um as someone is falling out of a building. um so yeah, this is this is what we is it inevitable? I don't know because it seemed like Mark Marquez seems to be uh, practicing. he seemed to be uh, and he uh, he never really had a, a fast crash. He had lots and lots of crashes but he always seemed to have slow crashes and and low low sights. not Mugello um,
3: in his where, well yeah yeah, yeah that was
0: it, yeah well I, you know what that that last year the, those were those were the differences but i mean like the, the Mugello was a, a rookie mistake Um, uh, but the other ones he had lots and lots of crashes you know he would crash 20 times uh, 20 times a season but most of them were sort of like 90 kilometers an hour um, uh, hung right off the bike so all he was really doing was sort of you know letting the bike go rather than it wasn't actually falling onto the ground he was already on the ground it's just that he was no longer connected to the motorcycle so um there was not quite so far uh, far to fall but you know he did have a couple of big ones and he, eventually a big one caught him out whether he comes back uh, i i i honestly don't think anyone knows but well, dave what was the name of that french film again just for all of our film buffs lion and it's uh, which is uh, french for hatred um, yeah, but I'm from sure the, from um, the
3: all-time greats, I would say.
0: Yeah, it is. It's it's a very very it's a it's a it's a film about rioting, so it seems um, quite timely <laughs> at the moment, shall we say?
3: Yeah, no wonder I was, you know, I, an Irishman perked up and said it was one of his favourites. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, living in oh, the middle jokes, of Barcelona. I I have to say, though, I thought it sounded awful similar to Die Hard, where obviously Hans Gruber had everything under control until he fell out of a window. But uh, Neil, we've obviously seen that windows have been a a big issue for Mark as well in his uh, road to recovery. Obviously, we're going to see him back on the grid, but I'm going to ask each of you now. Do you think is he going to win the 2021 MotoGP World Championship?
3: No, I don't think so. No, No. Um, no. No, I think uh, he'll come back and it will be, you know, I think he has the determination and the work ethic to to come back and eventually uh, approach some of the heights that he uh, he reached in previous years. But I don't think it's going to be immediate. Um, and, you know, he looks like he might be giving up a few months of this season. Um, possible. Um, and that's going to be too big a, you know, too big a uh, if you're coming back and you're not completely 100 percent, perhaps then uh, that's going to be too big an obstacle to overcome to win the title
1: dave what about you do you think is mark going to win the championship i have absolutely no idea
0: um i mean obviously it's a complete cop-out but i genuinely have no idea i have no idea what is um what state his arm is Army. it is literally going to come down to uh, what state his arm is Army in if he only misses the first few races and he's strong enough uh, and his arm is strong enough, um, then he'll be champion. If he doesn't, um, if his arm is still significantly damaged and, and is not healing properly, um, then no, he's not going to be champion and he's never going to be champion again. So uh, I, I think um, it's it, it's impossible to say uh, at, at this point. But um, I think, you know, I am looking forward to MotoGP without Marquez because I think it's going to be... It is genuinely going to be you know much more exciting I don't think anyone is going to match for example Valentina Rossi's records or uh, Giacomo Agostini's records precisely because we've got such a broad field now that you can't win 10 or 11 or 12 races in a season any uh, anymore so there's no way you can rack up over a hundred uh, 100 wins um, not unless something very very radical changes so I think you know for the next 10 15 years we're not going to see someone get anywhere near um, uh, those sort of records
2: records for me it's uh it's a no I mean I'll, I'll climb off the fence but um, you know I think uh, you know I mean a man of Mark's talents is, is somebody that can't be ignored uh, but I think he also has has to get his head around the fact that he has less than one race on the motorcycle that he had last season uh, he's still gonna have to you know, for all his in-depth knowledge of the of you know the RCV, he's still going to have to get it ready for this season, um, and then he's going to have to discover what it's like to beat Juan a no Suzuki, or you know how it's going to be to face Jack Miller on a Factory Ducati, or to tackle the KTM's. Um, you know, there's still a lot of racing parameters that he's going to have to conquer before he reestablishes himself as the old Mark Marquez. And interestingly, I'll say um, Dave's point about looking forward to MotoGP without Mark. Um, is something very valid. Uh, I think there's a lot of excitement there about uh, the diversity of, of results we could see. But in, in MSGP, we had a, a little bit of a similar scenario where Tony Cairoli won six years in a row uh, and then dealt with uh, a broken arm in 2015 and then a preseason injury in 2016 and left him with nerve damage in his neck and and uh, his, his shoulder. So he was pretty much like a he was not the Kairodie we were used to seeing in 2016. In 2017, he came back and won sixth Grand Prix um, and won his ninth World Championship. And there was a lot of um, good f- goodwill, a lot of uh, you know, emotion of seeing a rider that had been so dominant and had set like a new level in the class, both in terms of racecraft and fitness um, and the way he he, he embraced the sport. Uh, You know, there was, uh, I think a lot of people enjoyed seeing that that 2-2-2 KTM back at the front. So it could very well be the same for Mark after having a year off of him.
0: A bit like uh, Valentino Rossi in 2015. You know, we'd all written him off uh, after he came back from Ducati. He had the big uh, uh, crash. At Mugello, uh, he had the shoulder injury, he had surgery, he had two years in Ducati where he did nothing. Uh, he came back uh, to, you know, a quite a modest return to Yamaha in 2013. And then 2015, he came, you know, very, very close to winning another championship. And you certainly, there was a huge uh, sort of groundswell of sympathy for him um, before it all turned ugly, Um uh, for, for you know just, just the season he was putting in at that age at that level of com- uh, competitiveness and again in, in a great season
3: yeah no just like to add to that Dave you know there have been some historical precedents of riders coming back from I mean basically the brink of their of their careers you, you think of McDooran in 1992 uh, I don't think anyone that would have looked at Dooran at the end of that year I think he, when he returned to action with two races to go, his skin was yellow uh, partly green just because of you know what it what he'd gone through um with the complications to the broken leg and no one i don't think at that moment would have foreseen him coming back to win five world championships you know barry sheen made some ridiculous recoveries from injury his daytona smash and i think 75 coming back from that was was pretty remarkable there are precedents of riders doing ridiculous things and mark is an example of that himself doing it you know several times in 2019 or or even in some seasons before um but yeah, you do wonder, it's it's just, uh, it is interesting how it's going to affect his mentality and how it's going to affect his approach when he does return to action and um, you know, whether it will inhabit him or, uh, you know, sorry, pro- prohibit him uh, in some respects. So yeah, um, I think it's, it, it just simply adds to the intrigue of the season ahead. I,
1: th- I think we're going to have to add one additional remarkable recovery as well because it looks like dave's actually perfectly fine from sitting so firmly on the fence i was sure that there was going to be some sort of an injury to you from that dave uh for me do you know what i'm, I'm going to be the outlier boys i'm just gonna i'm gonna say it on the podcast so that in uh, november one of us might be right i'm gonna say mark's gonna win the championship because he's mark marquez and that's what Mark does. And at the end of the day, like last year, I think uh, Joan Meir averaged 12 or 13 points through the course of the season. And like, fair enough. It's a, it's one year. It's a very small sample size. We're going to see a different season play out this year. But, you know, if Mark's able to race for the full season, I, I'll still, I'll still bet on Mark. You know, we saw Tom Brady just won the Super Bowl day, 40 years, 43 years old. No one gave him a chance at, at, at lasting that long. You know, Sometimes sports just play out those kind of stories. So I'm going to say it. Mark's going to, uh, he's going to win the championship. Steve, and, uh,
2: I, is, is, Steve is it at this point where you say that we got Repsol Honda as a podcast sponsor? or? Is it- <laughs> well,
1: I'll tell you what, right. Neil mentioned Ducati's just launched their bike and everyone says how great the Ducati looks. You know what, it looks the same year in, year out. Everyone says that bike looks great. If we can get Repsol on board just by me saying, I quite like the Repsol livery, <laughs> then bring them on, it's fine by me. <laughs> obviously, Dave, we also asked Hodgie about what he thought about World Superbikes with uh, Jonathan Ray. And Hodgie's uh, talking about you know how deep the field is, but that obviously he'd still be betting on Johnny to come out on top no matter what. But it is one of those situations where, at least in superbikes, we have seen a few more times that riders have gone out from the top of the class and uh, a new rider has always had to fill that void. You know, if you think back to right to the start of the championship, the likes of Doug Poland, you saw Scott Russell came in. He won the championship as a rookie coming over from the American Superbike Championship. You saw the likes of Foggy then take on that mantle. In production racing, we do see it quite a bit more because riders can move from World Superbikes to the MotoGP paddock, but uh, what we see from Ray, you know, the dominance that we've seen from him over the last six years, that's it's been remarkable.
0: Yeah, I mean, what Jonathan Ray has done in World Superbikes is is truly unmatched. Um, it's also an interesting contrast with, contrast with Mark Marquez in that you know Mark is known for crashing and, and injuring himself, and Johnny very very rarely crashes, and I certainly can't remember him ever really carrying an injury Um, to an extent. I mean, you know, he learned to ride by, by being forced to race a Honda for such a long time um, because he had to override that bike. He had to, um, Having a bike which wasn't competitive meant he had to find sort of all the extra speed, a little bit like we saw with Franco Morbidelli in two thousand and twenty, where you know you're not going to get it from the bike, so you've got to get it from your riding. You've got to get everything out of yourself, and that's certainly what we've seen with with Jonathan Ray. Ray is still hungry, Um so for him it's more about when he chooses to retire rather than when he will be forced to retire. But behind Ray, there's, I mean, there's lots of really outstanding riders, all a little bit different, you know, all all with different sort of strengths and weaknesses. And it's going to be, you know, fascinating to see how that plays out.
1: Yeah, you're looking back to, I think, Johnny in 2012 broke his leg at Ring. And other than that, he hasn't really had to carry too many injuries since then. Obviously, at Kawasaki, he's not really had too many over that uh, time frame. And like you said as well, Dave, the, the field behind Johnny is very strong. What's interesting in Superbikes, though, is that you know, we talked about last week on the pod that uh, you know Ducati's obviously got a really good bike. And uh, Haji was talking about that as well, about the bike that Ducati's managed to develop for the championship. They've gone out and pretty much done everything they can with you know an old school Superbike special make sure that you're able to have the best bike on the grid. BMW has obviously got a new bike this year. And uh, you know there's changes afoot in the championship. You look at the Honda Fireblade as well. There's three bikes out there in the grid that are all right up at the top of the cost price model for World Superbikes. So it does show that you know the challenge for Ray is probably going to be more about the machines he's up against just as much as the riders. I
2: don't know, Steve. I think uh, a factor... You know, if you look at the parallels between Mark Marquez and Jonathan Ray, then their team environment or the shell they built around them, you know, there's uh, even going into motocross, same with Tony Cairoli, he's been with the same team since 2004. Um, You know, and I think Ray's motorcycle, if he decided to retire tomorrow, that must be one of the most coveted saddles in international motorcycle sport because you know the team that Pere reba's got around him there as well as the way they work with uh, kawasaki and make that motorcycle sing um i mean that's a hell of a competitive package i mean johnny as well with mark i mean they have an incredible incredible feeling with a motorcycle maybe born out of their off-road uh, their poncho for off-road activities Uh, And, uh, you know, it's been a devastating mix. I I do hope that we see some of the other bikes, some of the other brands come to the fore. But when you look at the rest of the superbike field, you think, well, who on earth could be a world champion here? I mean, there are race winners and there's, you know, uh, riders desperate for some success or a a slice of the pie. But you just wonder whether it would be a little bit similar to MotoGP where, you know, if Jonathan Ray disappeared, there'll be a bit of a frenzy and and, um, maybe some miscalculations, some nerves, some anxiety about how to handle a, a championship campaign. Yeah,
1: I do think as well to add that if
2: Johnny retired, you know, that team would
1: fall apart. I think his side of the box, really? suddenly an awful lot of guys would leave because you've got a lot of guys like, you know, Yuri's been offered work as being a crew chief in super sport teams. And you know, there's a lot of, like, that's one of Johnny's mechanics. If he was to move, it would be because he wants to take on that extra responsibility, a new challenge. And I think that that could easily happen where... Johnny has kept that team together. He's that, he's that guy that keeps the band going. And if he leaves, suddenly a lot of people could end up saying, you know what, I could do with a new challenge now as well. Yeah,
0: I mean, the, the, that's the interesting thing is because, I mean, it really is a team sport. So you succeed as a team. Um, but, uh, you know, there can only be one crew chief, right? There can only be one chief data engineer. Um, there are mechanics. There are there are lots of people all playing roles. They're all extremely ambitious they all love winning and they stay together because they love winning um but at some point there comes a point when the the reason they were winning when the rider leaves then that gives them the opportunity to sort of like express their own ambition in terms of career if you like um but that's a much much bigger risk you know it's it's not the same as winning whereas if they actually stuck together as a team um and continued in their same roles because we saw that with Rossi's crew for example where for a long time everyone stuck together had more or less the same rule uh, roles there were very few uh sort of uh, extra additions I think Matteo Flamini was one of the very few who joined um there was uh, I think Andrew elder replaced one of the I think forget which one one of the mechanics which which um um who retired so there's lots and lots of uh lots and lots of changes um or there were very few changes to the team they kept the team together because the team together created so much success but there's this conflict within people will for you know personal success and uh, success as a team, you know. Am I? Do I want to win a world championship, or do I want to try to help? Um, uh, you know, take on a more important role in in, in winning a cha- or trying to win a champion for someone else.
3: Uh, I would just like to maybe counter. Um, what Adam said I mean you said that there you're not sure if there's champions in the uh, in the super field if Johnny did let's say retire uh, tomorrow hypothetically speaking obviously um, but you look at last year's championship and I mean Scott Redding for me is a guy that could still step up another level I mean we all know how talented top rack Rascarioglu is I think Johnny himself has said that top Rack's one of the most talented guys he's ever raced on track um, and then Maybe I'm jumping the gun a bit, but Michael Ruben Rinaldi looks like a very promising prospect. Maybe not a, a serial champion of the future, but in a factory Ducati team, certainly capable of something interesting. Um, you know, there's there's quite a few, maybe not young names in certain respects, but certainly new names in the case of Reading, and then some youth in 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 the cases of uh, Toprak and, and Ruben Rinaldi that could step up and and be real forces in Ray's hypothetical absence, I'm not sure. Uh, what do you think about that, Steve? Like, Would you say any of those guys are serial uh, serial champions of the future?
1: Yeah, I think there's nine world champions on the grid, and then you throw in the likes of Haslam and Lowe's or BSB champions. So there are guys that know how to win championships, but whether they know how to win a world superbike championship is a different story because I think it's only Tom Sykes is the only one that's won a, a superbike title, but uh, Tom's not going to win another one. You know, because Johnny's been able to show just how high the bar has to go. I think someone like Scott can win a championship, but we also saw that Scott could have won a Moto2 World Championship. And, you know, he got hurt at the end of the season. He was starting to lose his form a little bit anyway. He was struggling with that expectation that goes from having to have that full season. You know, maybe Scott's matured more since uh, that Moto2 title campaign against Paul. You know, he was able to win a British championship. So I think there's a lot of that where those riders now might have an opportunity to show what they can do. But at the end of the day, we talked about it last week, where until Johnny's beaten, he hasn't been beaten. And, uh, you know, I think that's kind of what you're getting at as well, Ad, because, you know, there's a lot of good riders in the class now. Tito moves across, having won a Moto2 World Championship. But, you know, there's a big question mark as to whether or not he's going to be able to adapt to a superbike. And, and that's the challenge for everyone.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, of course, Scott's credentials are are there to win a championship. But, you know, again, having, I think, seen, you know, so many years of of motocross racing, where you're dealing with 40 races, 20 GPs, I mean, it's two motos per, per GP, you kind of get a respect for riders that know how to curate uh, a championship, they know how to nurse it, they know how to, um, you know, really kind of forge a campaign. I mean, of course on paper it's easy go fastest make the most amount of wins and you'll be world champion but there's so much more to it especially when you involve um you know injury uh loss of form and the the diversity of the racetracks and especially in superbike you know when you have three events on one weekend um okay they don't race as many rounds as as other world FIM world championships but you know you you if you don't get it right i think in in one superbike weekend then you're struggling you're going to lose a hell of a lot of points
1: Yeah, and I think that's the big thing that for me has always really set Johnny and his side of the Kawasaki box apart is that week in, week out, they take the right approach. And when you talk to Parariba, that approach isn't we need to win 12 races this year, we need to have 20 podiums. Their approach is we've got 13 weekends and out of those 13 weekends, we need to score more points than our rivals 13 times. So they're breaking it down into that ultimate target and that's whenever you talk to Reba about that was a that was a great weekend for you you know you won two races but maybe Johnny had a bad mistake in one of the other races and they only pulled out a couple of points on their rivals and that's what Reba will talk about I don't know you know we only picked up two points on whoever the title rival is that year or else you'll talk to him about like you know when Alvaro Bautista was going out to win three races in a weekend and you talk to Reba and he'd say that was a great weekend because we couldn't get near to beaten Bautista but we only gave up 13 points you know or, and that's the kind of approach that Ray and Reba have always taken and it's that long game that always works out and they seem to really look at that with how they set the bike up with how they work as a team and take the approach that it's about the end goal and I think that's what makes them special compared to a lot of other teams where it's all about you know we won two races this weekend doesn't matter what happened in the third race because you know we got two trophies and you know, they could lose points on Ray, even though they were able to beat him twice. Um,
0: Neil mentioned Toprak Rasgatlioglu, and I
1: think the, the, the
0: Yamaha, when we were talking about, you know, the bikes that can win the championship, the Yamaha is an interesting one because it's not one of the, uh, it's not one of these, you know, high dollar bikes. Um, it, it's not sort of priced right at the very limit. Uh, I think even the R1M is, I mean, it's expensive, but it's not, um, uh, it's not Panigali expensive. Um, that to me is interesting because we saw not so much last year, but certainly in 2019, it was very much an all round bike. It was, you know, the, the bike was, was good at most places. Um, and I think, what adam was saying about you know it's about having 40 races you got 39 races in, in in world Superbikes. you know we 26 full races and 13 sprint races and that's uh, that takes a lot of managing you, the way that you win a championship is like you say you you score as many points as you can um some people try to do that by going all out and trying to win everything um, but when that's difficult it's it's a more clever strategy to make sure that you come away with the points. We saw that. I mean, that's how Juan Mir won Mir one in MotoGP last year. That's how Mark Marquez, I mean, perhaps his most impressive championship against, um, uh, against Andrea Dovicioso in 2019, where he, he either finished first or he finished second, um, except for one, uh, making one mistake. So, yeah, understanding that, understanding that you need to come away with the biggest possible uh, point haul and I think a bike like the Yamaha where you've got uh, a, you know more of a rounded uh, more of a rounded performance um uh, that that offers opportunities as well, you know, it, it, off, it offers opportunities to a to a rider who can use their brains to uh, you know maximize their point haul and see see how far they they can get.
1: Yeah, I think for me though the Yamaha is not good enough. Because while it's a pretty good package everywhere, it's not a great package at enough tracks to make up for the fact that on its bad days, it could finish sixth or seventh because at the end of the day, Johnny's not going to have too many races where he finishes sixth or seventh. And that's where it does come down to really Ducati versus Kawasaki. And it comes down to, you know, Chaz Davis and Scott Redding versus Ray, because they're You know Johnny's the benchmark and they're on the best bike so those two guys need to be able to really step up and that's the big challenge for everyone in the class and I think that's what's going to be the biggest thing for everyone and it's interesting because when you talk to people across different sports I remember I was talking to a, a football manager here in Ireland in the League of Ireland team and he said that he didn't need his best striker to score 50 goals a year he needed his best striker to score 10 goals a year but he needed them in the 10 games that mattered and I think that it's taken that sort of approach. That's what we've seen with Ray, and that's why he's been able to win so many titles. And he's at that stage now as well, where he just believes that he's going to keep winning. And when you talk to him, he doesn't take it for granted, but he knows that it's up to someone else to stop him. And I think that's the the big challenge for everyone else. And it could well come down to the same thing that we've seen with Mark, where it takes an injury, or it takes just some moment of weakness, and then suddenly Ray becomes vulnerable. And someone else is able to put it together on a consistent basis. That could be Scott. It could be Toprak. It could be any number of riders. It could be Vandermark on the BMW. It can be maybe something inside the team. Maybe you see the likes of Lowe step up and take more of a challenge to Ray. And suddenly, Jonathan becomes a little bit more vulnerable.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's one factor which we haven't mentioned, which I think is absolutely key. And that is just naked ambition if you think i mean mark marcus is the most ambitious rider i think i've ever come across mcdoon was the same you know it wasn't enough to win um uh, others must lose um you have to other people have to suffer he he, he wants to win so badly Um, that he's prepared to do anything to do it. Jonathan Ray is the same. Jonathan Ray really, really wants to win and he's prepared to put almost everything aside to achieve those objectives. And you don't see too many of those. I mean, I think uh, uh, MXGP is an interesting one because you have Tony Cairoli, who is also extremely ambitious, versus uh, Jeffrey Hurlings, who is... I mean, like, when I speak to Dutch uh, um, MXGP journalists, they will tell me... They tell me, like, he's the most ambitious person they've ever sort of met. And certainly, whenever I've spoken to him very, very briefly, he, he gives that same impression of just the only thing that matters is, is winning and they're prepared to do everything for it and i think that that's the difference and that's what we'll see i mean adam mx am i right about hurlings versus cairoli
2: very much so dave but uh i would say that jorge prado is going to supersede him um you know he's <laughs> the only difference of prado is that he does it with a bit of a baby face and a smile um but he's uh he's pretty ruthless I think he'll be. He's. He's. They're ready to. In fact, he's my tip already for the championship this year. I think he'll. He'll be the man.
0: Yeah, you saw the same with Valentino Rossi when he came in. You know, in in his early years, he would. You know, he would sit sit behind uh, Max Biaggi and, and and wait until he fell off, sort of thing. You know, just putting pressure on it because it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't enough. To just win, he had to show him that he won. Uh, the 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 curse on Seti Jibunau is the is, is the other one is the other um, uh, uh, classic example where you know he blames Jibunau for uh, for for dobbing him in to use an Australian expression um, of watching too much neighbours. You know, uh, <laughs> Gibinau, Rossi watched uh, uh, Rossi blamed uh, Gibbonow for uh, you know t- telling the the FIM about cleaning the grid. And, you know, Rossi said, right, that's it. You're never going to win a, a race again. And Seta Gibbonan never did. Now, there's lots of reasons why he didn't. But um, uh, that kind of ambition, drive, ruthlessness, sheer uh, will to humiliate your, your rivals, I think that's the thing. And that's one of the things which are missing from the riders in MotoGP and from riders in World Superbikes.
1: Yeah, well, I think all the writers still have that. It's just a case of they're a bit too well media trained and uh, that seems to be the biggest difference, really. And, but it's uh, it's interesting, Dave, that obviously, uh, you know, Valentino doesn't hold a grudge. We definitely didn't see anything this week where, you know, he's been able to forget about the past and, and move forward. Obviously, it's not just a case of... Uh, Sepang 2015 being uh, really good for clickbait and uh, just to make sure you get your story count up. But uh, coincidentally, we'll have a full Sapang 2015 recap again <laughs> for the 16th time next week <laughs> on the Paddock Pass podcast. <laughs> we did actually do that already during lockdown, so I should be very much tongue in cheek for that. But uh, we've obviously got uh, nearly 200 episodes of the Paddock Pass podcast. So you can make sure to listen back to any of the previous episodes. We look back at uh, major incidents from the past we did a lot of them during the lockdown last year and obviously over the course of this winter we've done a lot of single topic shows such as this week where we look at what would have happened without the leading riders in these two classes
0: you know what would have been uh, quite interesting, now that you mention it, is for me, is it, it, to go back and listen to the show we did immediately after Sepang 2015, uh, and then our, um, uh, 2015 recap show, which we did the other, which we did, well, I can't last remember, how long. yeah, last year. So th- I think that would make interesting uh, listening. So anyone, if anyone wanted to, uh, to do that, they should do that. We should, t- we should probably look up which episodes they were.
1: I think it's also worth knowing that you really shouldn't listen back to many from the 2015 season because uh, <laughs> I wasn't on them because my employer didn't let me at that time.
2: But, uh, you know, I'm sure you can go back and give us a listen and it'll still count for all of our stats, though. Maybe we should, uh, you know, have a bit of a repraisal of, of Rossi's early career because you mentioned names like Match Biaggi and, uh, you know, Seta now. But, you know, if I think about the quality and the opposition that Rossi has to deal with now in MotoGP compared to, you know, Sete Gibbono. I'm sorry. I mean, he was fast sometimes, so I would hardly call him a a premium rival. um You know, you kind of think, well, you can understand a little bit more the the scope of the task that Rossi has or has had over the last half decade compared to the mid-noughties.
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, his his uh, his career since 2006, after. Casey Stoner came in, Danny Pedrosa came in, Jorge Lorenzo came in, and then later um, Mark Marcias came in. If you think he faced, you know, some of the greatest riders in the world after he, um, you know, after he had been so successful, and that the fact that he has stood up to, to you know, managed to keep his level that high is, is is the most impressive thing. So yeah, for me, that's that's perhaps his greatest achievement. But yes, that's that's a separate episode, but an interesting one.
1: Yeah, I think for me, what I found really interesting whenever I had to do some classic races of, of Rossi's career, you know, his first Grand Prix win and all those kind of things, was actually to look back at the field that he went to in one two fives. Because Neil, if you look back in that mid nineties, that's whenever you still had the likes of Aoki, you still had Monaco, you still had Alzamora was still on the grid. Uh, I think Aspar was still on the grid. Like it was unbelievable depth of field in the one two five class at that stage.
3: It was, yeah. Um, But just going off topic, I would like to lodge an official complaint. Um, Why haven't we done a full feature length show on the pros and cons of wearing the number one in the (laughs) MotoGP class? There hasn't been enough blood, sweat and tears on this vital, crucial topic that's getting everyone so riled up these days. Where where is the anger, guys? Where's the passion?
1: I'll tell you what, Neil, you make a very valid point. And seeing as I was talking about the clickbait of Supang 2015, there is no topic that's got more clickbait than the number one plate. Dave, I stand by what I said to you on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. I really hope he rides with a number 11 plate, and on his bum patch, he's got, just keep
2: trolling. And I think it'll be uh, class. Number one. <laughs> Can I also say, Steve, I, You know, next week's show um, about which... MotoGP 2021 bike livery is the most disappointing is going to be riveting. Uh we've had a a <laughs> first entry um from Avintia, uh which you know better better you know let's let's dodge that one. And then Ducati going straight to Ducati red.
0: Yeah, but I mean the 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 Avincia livery was um uh was as successful as their uh, as their live stream <laughs> launch.
1: Well, I have to say I thought it was really I I I thought it it was clear that uh, for the Aventia launch, they said, we've got to do a really cool launch. But there was a loss in translation there because they just decided to go outside at a petrol station and everyone (laughs) just looked absolutely frozen. So, uh, you know, it could have been it could have just been an issue like that. Maybe the Wi-Fi didn't extend inside the uh, petrol station forecourts.
3: Yes, I'm still really devastated. Still reading from the fact that I didn't cancel my uh, my plans on Friday night to go and uh socialize with a small group of friends in order to catch that live stream on instagram because you know what you guys were saying about it just made it it sounded like it was unmissable really
1: i i have to say i've pretty much always found as great as launches are because you get to see the new bike and it gets you that bit of excitement for the new season i remember going to a few of them and they just never did anything for me and it was always just a case of Let's just get through this one. That's why, Dave, I always quite like the ones at the Supang test, because you're already in the hotel to eat your dinner and you can just walk down the corridor and make it seem like you're really interested in why a new petrol supplier or lubricant is going to really change the world. Uh, well, I have to say that I
0: missed the Ducati ones because they were always in Bologna, and that was um, uh, uh, quite. I mean, I, I missed the, uh, uh, the 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 skiing ones in Cortina, uh, which I, I think it was wherever it was. Uh, the 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 Philip Morris um, uh, tobacco money fueled ones, um, but even then, you know, you got to Bologna, you got to stay in Bologna for a couple of days, eat um, eat some fantastic Italian food. Um, the uh, the first half of the presentation was um, incomprehensible, and was most about sponsors getting their pictures taken with the motorbike um but then you did get a chance to actually speak in depth to uh you know to gigi delinia to uh paulo uh, ciabatti david to the riders uh, to all the rest of the people to claudia Domenicali. um it, you got a real chance to actually talk to people and that was and that was really really interesting i actually think that the UK did a good
1: job uh, um uh, today obviously dave uh, now that it's all done on you know a, a zoom call or whatever whatever uh, alternatives can be used it's uh, taken a taking a big step back for your enjoyment of it but uh, interestingly, on the Paddock Pass podcast, we're actually going to go and offer that at some point in the near future for our Patreon supporters. So we'll be able to offer a live stream podcast where we're going to take your questions and we're going to take some input from you during the course of recording a show. So make sure that you're able to get involved with that at patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, where, as I said, at the top of the show, for $3 a month, you can support the podcast. And for that, we'll offer a lot of exclusive content through the year. You can also follow us at uh, Paddock Pass pod on Twitter, Twitter, and uh you can drop us a question there you can leave a comment and uh, we'll try and get them answered then in future shows so for myself steve english from adam wheeler neil morrison and uh, david emmett thank you for joining us on the paddock pass podcast presented by fly racing this episode of the paddock pass
0: podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett Music is provided by the Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.
1: You got anything there, Dave? Uh, there's one you name. Looked, you looked like a man that was ready, to, was <laughs> yeah, ready exactly. to talk.
0: There is one name which we haven't actually mentioned, and that's uh, Toprak Razgat- Razgatlioglu, perhaps. I mentioned. That's them. why we
1: haven't mentioned him. I mentioned
3: him. <laughs>
0: Oh, well done. Well done, Neil. Yeah, I should probably listen to what Neil says. He usually talks (laughs) sense.